Hi there, welcome to an episode of an Inside View podcast in association with On The Ball Team Building. I'm your host, Jamie Finn. If this is your first time listening, please do go back to episode one and have a listen. If you haven't done so already, please do click subscribe. There is a business or sports person in each of us, and we hope that our guest stories will help our listeners to chase their dreams. Welcome to episode two of series two of an Inside View podcast with On The Ball Team Building. Again, big shout out to our sponsors, Vintry Harbour Asset Management for the continued support. And if any business out there would like to come on board, be sure to drop us an email or contact us on any of our social media platforms. Our email address is info at ontheballteambuilding.com. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by RD and TG Kahar video journalist, Sean McIntyre. The Bally Furter native established himself in the broadcast journalism world. His unique reporting style has really broken the mould uh, to traditional news stories which typically follow a specific style and format. Sean's work has brought him all around the world and he's gotten to see the strength of the community and he's gotten to see how the strength of the community is relevant and necessary everywhere. Sean was also an excellent footballer and played a pivotal role in the success of UCC and Anguagduct during the early noughties. There's no doubt we have a huge amount to cover, so let's bring him on. Hi Sean, first of all, thanks for taking time out to come on the Interview Podcast. I really appreciate it. How are you keeping? Good, Jamie. Thanks for the, the invitation. Looking forward to it. We're trying to get this together for the last couple of weeks and, you know, we're trying to plan it before I left and, and uh, look, thankfully we got it over the line. Um, I know you've, uh, you've a lot of projects on at the moment, but what is the, the latest project you're, uh, you're, you're working on? Well, obviously day to, the day job really is on, on news. So providing content for, for Nuach TG Cahar and RTE as well. Um, but I'm also working on, on a couple of, um, longer format projects, uh, a documentary film uh, about Brown Dono Bugwee. He, he's a, a, a campaigner here in West Kerry, a musician who's had difficulties securing planning to build a house on his land. And he's, he's spent the last 10, 10 12 years uh, in, a, in a battle with the, the local authorities. And uh, he's embarked on a campaign now. And I'm also working on a, a documentary series about rain. So, and <laughs> oddly enough, I was out in your neck of the woods there a couple of weeks ago. We were out in, in the Emirates there um, filming a few items for that program, kind of looking at, at um, an, an area that suffers from lack of rain as opposed to the deluge we have here at home. And even this evening now, it is down to our ears in mist. So it was in- interesting to see how communities are shaped and molded um, by the climate out there where you are um, and you know how they they adapt to the challenges they're posed by lack of rain what was just i suppose you know without going into too much detail what was your your takeaway from it you know compared there to ireland we've too much rain and over in dubai there's not there's not, no bit of rain no bit of rain but plenty of money oh there is know? yeah <laughs> you know so um yeah that was that was actually the the, the thing i suppose that struck me most you know let's say if things did go belly up in a, in a significant way in places like, like Dubai, for example, um, is there a built-in resilience in the, in the infrastructure there and indeed within the people there to cope with a crisis? You know, um, 
a lot of the 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 the, the, the a lot of the measures they've taken to to combat combat the the severity of the climate there is reliant on its wealth, and mm-hmm. therefore it raises the question: if, if something very wrong goes goes wrong, will you be looking at the complete collapse of an entire region out there? Yeah, just it'd be very very interesting to see you know what you delved into in that documentary. And when when do you hope to when do you hope to release that? That should that that series should be ready for um, the end of next spring. All right, oh, right. yeah, all going well. And that'd be on TG Car, is it? It's for TG Car. That's right. Car, yeah. They must be looking at you sideways when you were talking Irish over here. <laughs> they were, although I was on the street one day and uh, trying to do a couple of pieces to cameras, Oscar and and uh, there was a roar. Kunasatanto from behind me, a fella passing by. <laughs> Oh, he'd at least brought that much of Irish with him anyway <laughs> she's brilliant 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 you're, you're never too far away from home no did you did you get to sample the, the Guinness over here I didn't I kind of I stuck to the beer and the wine there <laughs> it, it, how is the Guinness there it's a bit different right yeah you know yeah. Back in, you know it's, it's it's obviously altered for the the market here and for the hot hot culture here but um no it's it's, it's nice some places in other places like just water so you'd be staying away from it um but i look i suppose it's it's um we, we bring it back you know thankfully i suppose as you've seen COVID is very much non-existent over here in dubai at the moment apart from walking the street you must wear masks Back at home, what's it like, and how has the whole experience been for you? Um, at the moment, I suppose you can feel a, a bit of anxiety creeping into the community again. In, in, in very recent weeks, we've seen um, a significant growth in the, in the number of COVID cases. Um, thankfully, that hasn't transferred itself into you know serious hospitalisation numbers. Um, because of the vaccination program, there's been quite a good take up on vaccination here. But obviously, in a small rural community, you can sense it. Even I, I had to bring the young fella into the dentist there today, and uh, the, the dentist in, in the local town in Dingle was saying they've had a lot, lot of cancellations in the last uh, oh. week or so. People just uh, that little bit more nervous again mm. uh, of venturing out into. into into you know places that they might be coming in contact with with others, so there's certainly a bit of apprehension building again. Yeah, no, definitely. And I suppose that you know, it even you know, I suppose when I came out here, we we're so strict at home with regulation out here. Then it's it's kind of it's obviously reduced a bit, but they are very strict in certain things, PCR tests to go certain places and, and stuff like that. But there's always going to be that element of anxiety because we were locked up for 18 months, you know, if you're walking into places and, but it's, look, that's all going to be a culture change again. But I, I have seen the numbers, it's, you know, it's over 2000, I think over the last couple of days. So hopefully, hopefully the pubs won't be closed by Christmas because I'll, I'll have to cancel the flight home. <laughs> please God, please God. Um, look, there's, you know, people all around the world know and have heard of Fungi the Dolphin, you know, has really brought Dingle onto the, the map on the world stage. Um, you know, even like, you know, chat to people over here about Fungi and who is a dolphin or you know, who was a dolphin um, in Dingle. You know, they, they find it amazing. Um, 
and I think you're the right person to chat to about this. So obviously, you know, COVID affected everyone and unfortunately the community lost fungi as well. Um, can you bring us around that whole story and and how how it kind of how it has affected the community since mm. the news broke over a year ago now? I suppose, you know, fungi was a wild bottlenose dolphin that came to Tingle Harbour in 1983 and he decided to make it his home. He just stayed at the mouth, mouth of the harbour and gradually over time, people started to swim with him. People started to play with him. Um, and then Phyllis saw an opportunity, I suppose, to make a few bob and they started to, to run some trips out to him. And uh, gradually then this whole industry built up around uh, wonderful dolphin, friendly dolphin. And people from all over Ireland came to see him and people from all over the world came to see him indeed. And I suppose, you know, almost everyone in the country would have their own memory of fungi. And, you know, OK, he's a wild dolphin and he disappeared. You know, you'd expect that. But uh, there was there was an, a, an awful outpouring of grief and, and a sense of loss when he did go, because he was very much part of the town's identity from a community perspective. You know, um, I'm 44 years of age now and I'd have been six or seven when Fungi came. Six years of age, I think. So, I, you know, people uh, my age and, and younger d- wouldn't have known Dingle without Fungi, you know. Um, having said that, you know, Dingle, obviously it's a huge blow to the town, but I think it's, it's established itself as, as a tourist destination, certainly with the help of fungi. And, you know, there, there, there's been a lot of development there. And, you know, I suppose there is maybe a tendency, you know, to see the loss of something like fungi as a disaster for the economy and so on. But we, we tend to forget sometimes what actually brings people here. You know, it's, it's the beauty of the landscape. It's the draw of the people. It's the the heritage and the culture of the place and the atmosphere that that generates. And um, so, you know, I, we even saw it this summer, you know, the, t- the town was thronged, you know, and the peninsula was busy. Uh, the place has a lot going for it. And in a way, the real danger, I suppose, is that you're coming to the point on the peninsula here that we have been so successful, we could be a victim of that success and that we could actually kill that magic that makes the place such an attractive place for visitors. Um, You know, everything's becoming more expensive every year. Accommodation is coming under more pressure every year. And you sometimes worry that maybe the area could be losing that sense of character that draws people here, that kind of genuine, um, deep-rooted sense of place that people experience here. Um, so I, I think we're at a point on the, you know, that we have to be a bit careful, you know, that you, you don't kill the goose that laid the golden egg, if you like. Um, and we just have to be a bit sensitive to that. You know, it's, it's all well and good uh, drawing in the euros and hand over fist, but uh, you could become blind to the danger uh, that you're losing something special. Yeah, definitely. Now, as a result of COVID and the loss of fungi, you know, perhaps the the, the peninsula is at a, a crossroads. How it's going to go, um, especially when foreign travel will return. You know, it's probably a lot cheaper to get on a Ryanair flight than 
book a few nights back in you know on the plinza you know it's it's obviously it's great for the community but you know for you know for families four or five in a family it can be quite expensive it can it can and well i think it's always been the case in ireland i suppose that holidays at home were always seen as a bit more expensive than taking the easy option of jumping on a plane and heading off to the canaries or whatever on a package deal um but i think I think what we're seeing globally as well is is um, the growth of the unique product, you know, the unique selling point. So you've got the growth of, you know, craft foods and craft beer and people moving away from the global uh, brand. So I think if if we look after and mind what we have here, that we have an, a, a wonderful product to present to the, the, the visitor, um, you know, that is unique, that has roots, that is authentic, you know, it's not manufactured. It's not something we've, we've, we've had to, to create in order to draw people. We, we've built on what's, what was always here. Uh, but as I say, it's, it's really important that we don't lose sight of that facet and uh, that, that we respect it and nurture it rather than milking it to its death. You know, I suppose perhaps it is important to just give a quick insight into, you know, the fungi with us nearly 30 years or, or more. What, you know, speaking to people in the area and people who would know the sea for years, what, why do you think he located in Dingle, in Kerry, you know, and why did he stay there? What's the feeling around, around, what was the feeling around the community? You know, there were different theories, I suppose. Some were saying he was a bit of a loner that didn't, I suppose, enjoy the company of, of being in a pod or with being with other dolphins. And um, others say then that there was, you know, certain types of feed in Dingle Bay that were that was convenient for him and that he decided to stay. So more fellas say that he, he had a big, big ego. <laughs> and that when he was getting a bit of attention at the mouth of the harbour that he enjoyed it and you know in fairness to him you know there wasn't a day hardly a day went by that he didn't show himself you know he'd remarkable stamina but he must have he must have enjoyed it himself the attention you know and the, you know you'd often go for a walk out along the, the cliffs there and being born and you'd hear the screeching and the squealing of delight from the kids down in the boats below like he brought such joy to people um, it, 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 he, he brought a wonderful gift to people, you know, and then you had, I suppose, on a more serious level, the people that came to swim with him in that seeking healing, you know, oh, people, yeah. were, people were convinced that they found healing um, from swimming with the dolphin, oh. you know, people with illnesses or, or a disability and that type of thing, um, that he had this quality, a healing quality. And uh, so people had a very, very strong attachment with him. I, I never heard that story. That, I, well, I knew people used to uh, swim with him, but I never knew, you know, people got a healing, uh, you know, got healed or, or cured uh, illnesses um, by swimming with him. Like what other stories will you've heard down through the years of, of fungi? Because I think it's important to, to keep, keep that alive as well. Well, I, I suppose... You know, he was at the mouth of the harbour there and he was almost like a sentry at the entrance of the harbour. And, you know, Dingle's an old fishing town and you'd have had the boats heading out there, out into the, the wild Atlantic, uh, earning a hard living. And 
they had an attachment with the Dolphin as well because you know he, he, he was there to say goodbye to, to them at the mouth of the harbour and he was the first person to welcome them back home to safe haven. So he was a welcome sight for those fishermen coming back in. And as I say, part of the town's identity, you know, he helped economics aside, like I heard, I heard Fungi described once by, by a fellow buyer as the best little factory that ever came to West Kerry. <laughs> you know, but he did have a big economic impact. But apart from that, he was part of the town's identity in a big way, you know. And in West Kerry, we're proud of the things that kind of define us or distinguish us from other communities. You know, we've got the RAN on St. Stephen's Day. We've got the, the footballing tradition. You know, we've got the language. And then you also have a, a, a character like Fungi because I suppose personality of place is built on characters. And normally when you talk about characters, you talk about interesting people that live within a community. Fungi was an interesting character in his own right. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, and I suppose, you know, you'd, you'd have P.O. as well back west would have been an interesting character in the community, um, obviously in the peninsula, just that's no, I, I know what you mean, interesting characters. Um, well, do you, do you, did you hear any other brilliant stories of, of fungi back in the day? I suppose I'm kind of putting you on the, on the spot there now. Well, everyone has their own kind of little story about fungi, but you know, he had his little haunts. So people kind of, I suppose, depending on how they interacted with him, some people interacted with him, obviously from boats, more swam with him. More went out in kayaks with him. Um, many people watched him and communicated with him from the from the, the cliffs even. And of course, I remember when I was digging out some archive there for a report, news report I was doing. There's some wonderful footage uh, captured for a by, for a film called The Dolphin's Gift. Um, Paddy Ferrer, the lighthouse keeper, he was the first fella to spot Fungi and he was a great character. Like he's something out of a, out of Hollywood casting with his white bonnie sweater and his weather-beaten face. And he knew the dolphin intimately and he could, um, you know, he knew he, the dolphin's movements and that. And he was this wonderful storyteller. And uh, but I, I, I heard a good story about him actually that the lighthouse that he lived in was quite rough and it was very damp, you know, and... He, he kind of lived there alone and he, it was rough and ready. But the Bonin sweater that he was wearing in the film, I was told that he wore that Bonin almost every single day and it was filthy dirty. But whenever someone important might come to visit, he'd take off the Bonin and turn it inside out, <laughs> clean side out <laughs> for, for the duration of the visit. And when that person left, then again, it was back to the old dirty Bonin, dirty out. <laughs> Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Look, I, I think you know everyone would would recognise you from you know being in, on in report news reports on RD and you know documentaries you've done on TJ Kahar, which has allowed you to travel the world. Um, and I think it's important because I like to bring our listeners through or actually allow them to gain insight into into that person and how you know they got to where they are today. So. You're obviously you're you're an ungrateful man. Um, something that I didn't know until I I looked I started researching you was that you weren't too bad at all football as well. Playing a bit of bit of Gaelic football, you you had a pretty good uh, footballing career. Um, do you want to bring us back to to that time? We say the the early you know late nineteen late nineties early nineties when you're in UCC and and uh, that great time you had with ungrateful. 
well, I suppose I wasn't a bad footballer, but I wasn't a great footballer either, <laughs> Jamie. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I wasn't blessed with blistering pace, I'll put it that way. Um, I, I suppose, you know, I, I was fortunate to play on, on a few teams that had some exceptional players. And I just about managed maybe to hold my own, you know. But uh, yeah, it was, you know, a wonderful period, I suppose. You know yourself, the GA, it's a, it's a very influential force in any young person's life. You know, it's where you make your friends. It's where you kind of develop your your traits as a person. It's where you build your character. Um, it's where you have ups and you take many knocks as well. And, but it's also where you're representing community. And I think that's the big thing. You know, you're not playing for yourself. You're playing for the team, naturally, but you're also playing for your community. And I think that's a huge motivating factor, especially in a place like um, back here in the Gaeltacht, because I suppose, you know, the, the nature of the community here, you have a lot of families who've been here for many, many, many generations, going back hundreds of years in many cases. So not alone are you representing your community, but you're representing your ancestors as well. And there's the pride of carrying your surname with you onto a team. Um, we, we were lucky growing up, like in the sense that there wasn't much to do in, in back in the Gaeltacht when I was going to school and back in prim my primary school days, there was the one sport, Gaelic football, that was it. There was no rugby, there was no soccer, no, obviously no hurling. Um, the, you know, so, the natural, the only choice was to go playing football in Galaris and up in your bike. And it was the five or six mile cycle every evening over to training. There was no parents dropping us off back in those days, but we loved it because we used to travel in groups. Um, and, you know, you'd always look forward to stopping off at the shop on the way home. And um, I think that probably helped us as well, because if you look at the team we had with, with Unreal, the group of players kind of all came along together. You know, it was quite, quite a, a talented group of players that just happened to arrive at the same time. And, you know, the fact that we were fairly close traveling in those groups to training on our bikes, spending a lot of time together, you know, friendships grew and loyalty grew. And uh, thankfully, you know, we had good mentors as, as, as we were growing up. Liam O'Rohan in particular, you know, he was involved in every single age group while we were growing up. He, he put a tremendous amount of work and he was supported then by, you know, a lot of uh, generally fathers. Um, uh, so um, I suppose, you know, we, had, a, we had, had some very nice players and we managed to win a couple of county championships. And that was a huge thing for a place like Unreult because, you know, it's a very rural area, very remote, traditionally remote area. And if you look at the record, I was reading lately there, it's, it's, it's um, what is it, tw 20 years since we won our first county championship. And there was a, an article in the Kerryman about it, kind of looking back and... <clears throat> Unreult would would be would be seen very much as an outlier in that it, it's only the second rural club to have ever won a county championship. All the other county championship winning teams are urban based or divisional side, sides, which would be amalgamations of of many clubs from rural settings. So, you know, we had such a strong team. We had we had five five players playing on the on the Kerry panel at the time. You know the the, the O'Shea brothers, that old Canadian, that Don McGarrett, and you know we had more players then on the fringes. And 
on every player on our team had played for Kerry at some level and you know it, it was a nice balanced team and it, 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 it's often said that maybe we should have won more but um, you know I think given when you look at history to have won two county championships coming from an area like like we did um, it's 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 a good return yeah, I had a I Tomasa Shea on the podcast. It would have been series one. Okay, I don't know what episode it was now, but uh, he gave a few great stories of, of trips home from from Tralee. There there wasn't a pub missed between <laughs> between Tralee and uh, and Dungreyktuk no, after the county finals. We had many many good nights, and you know even when we'd come across one another, you know, in, on an evening out, or you know so, some lads when they're home from from the States or wherever they're based now, be it Australia, you know, the, the, you, you immediately click again. It's like, it's like you'd never parted, you know, so that bond, that bond always exists. I'll, I'll delve into that now a bit more in a, in a minute, but um, I'd just like to throw this to you. In your opinion, how do you think your upbringing, you know, I suppose in, in Ongoyakdukta, in Andadinga Peninsula, had an influence new and shaped you into the person today? Obviously, history, culture, and and the J would be big factors. Mm. Well, I suppose I I I grew up in Balaglisha, which is a little townland in in the parish of Balnartarig, and it's right out of the the tip of the the Dingle Peninsula. And uh, growing up in the the early eighties as a young boy, I suppose I I see myself as being fortunate to have kind of witnessed the the tail end of a different life, a completely different life in that. Uh, a very traditional society which was based on subsistence farming started to change in the late 70s into the early 80s you know there was um, we joined, Ireland joined the EU uh, farmers started to get grants uh, incomes started to grow with growing incomes I suppose lifestyle started to change expectations started to rise um, but as a young fella, like I remember a lot of the older generation, you know, bachelors, neighbours that lived beside us that were still very much part of that old world, you know, and they belonged to um, a, a different era, but belonged to a different mindset as well, I think. You know, they were the pre-electrification generation. Uh, and I think that brought a different way of looking at the world, the lack of electric light uh, gave them I think a richer imagination that that generated a different worldview like I, I often you know you often hear talk about the the fairies and the and the ghosts and that type of thing and that we kind of scoff at it today and the banshee you know? as well yeah. yeah you know we we might say, laugh laugh at the whole notion you know as being a bit naive uh but take 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 electricity out of it and you're plunging a rural community living on the side of a mountain into complete darkness and uh, you're wandering the roads at night and you're hearing sounds and you know the the natural vulnerabilities within us start to play tricks with the mind you know so but I think it it brings when I when I talk about a different mindset and worldview I'm 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 really talking about I suppose the intimacy with your surroundings that they were that those people were really, really in touch with their natural landscape and also the cosmos around them. You know, they 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 could feel and they could they could um, they could identify the changes in 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 the weather, 
the changes in the night sky, the changes in, in the sea, the changes in the rivers, the changes in the land, and they altered their own behavior accordingly. So they were perfectly in tune with, with, with their own place. And I think that's something we've kind of lost, you know, I suppose all the convenience of, of um, modern technology, you know, we're, we're not as reliant on our immediate surroundings as much as we were. We can compensate by, by, by using inter, in, intermediaries, if you like, you know. Nice. Well, you know, you, you'd people who would tell how the weather would be tomorrow by, or how the weather was going to be in the next couple of days by the change of the, the waves and all that, you know, the stuff like that was amazing when you hear stories about it. Yeah, and I suppose it, 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 that was all built on, on you know, age-old traditions that were handed down from one generation to the next. So it, it wasn't the case that there were just certain people within a community very wise or in tune with their surroundings. This was something they had inherited and was the built-up wisdom of many, many generations. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'd count myself fortunate to have witnessed people who were still very much immersed in that way of life. Uh, Neighbours, you know, that were rich in stories. I, I loved listening to their stories. I remember there was a, a, a man, Joe Cavan, he, he, he used to sit on a ditch on our way to school and we'd be walking up to school and he'd be before us and he'd be there again after school. But he had wonderful stories, ghost stories. He'd frightened the bejesus out of us. But we loved his stories and they've stayed with me. And I, I even tell my own children the same stories. We had Halloween there a couple of weeks ago and uh, I found myself telling the kids the stories I'd heard from Joe Kevin when I was a, a young boy myself. So I'm very thankful to have had the, the opportunity to connect with people like that and uh maybe and and it has it has influenced me in in a, in a sense in that the way i even might approach news gathering i kind of you know it's it's a lot of the the the, the storytelling techniques I, I i've noticed i use are kind of based on traditional string storytelling techniques so it's it's certainly had um, an influence on me and then uh, just as as a, a person of the place, I I'm, I feel I'm I'm very proud to be um, a West Kerry man. Um, you're representing your people in whatever you do. It doesn't matter what line of work you're you're involved in. It just so happens that my line of work is is in in um, television news, um, and it's a thing I I notice in in a lot of people around here. There's kind of a there's kind of a and an innate confidence in the people here. It's subtle, you know, we're not going around bragging or, or, or showing off or anything like that, but there is a confidence. And I think that confidence, confidence comes from knowing where you come from, you know, that it's, it's a fallback, you know, no matter what happens, there's always home, there's always the community, there's always the family to fall back on. And it's a great comfort when you're kind of going out into the world. And as well as, and in West Kerry, it's been for many, many decades a kind of a, a destination for tourists, but uh, as well as even before that, a destination for scholars and writers who want to come here and immerse themselves in the, the heritage and the culture here. And because we have these esteemed, if you like, visitors that they were coming here way back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 
it helped generate a self-confidence within ourselves, selves, I think, that we had something of value, you know, that these important people were coming to experience what we had. And I think that's something we carry with us quite often, whether it's some fellow going out, emigrating to America, setting up a business, you know, or he has the courage or she has the courage to give it a go, you know. And I think that stems from, from you know, the deep roots we have here within our communities and, and the confidence that gives us uh, in, in the wider world. Yeah, that, that, uh, you couldn't put that any better, like, because, you know, like, why do you think we are as, you know, I suppose, what was I trying to say? Like, it's amazing how, you know, the wider world doesn't affect that self-esteem and that rootness we have with our, our, where we're from, you know, West Kerry, the fact that it's the southwest tip of, the, you know, the furthest peninsula in Europe, you know, when you put it like that, next stop America, and yes, we still go out in the world and we're st- we still have that pride and no one can really affect that, that ego. And that, I won't say that ego, but it's like that subtle ego and that pride as to where we're from. I think it's something that's kind of developed over time and that, that handed down to us because I suppose you mentioned there next parish America, that means you're living on the extremity of something, you know, and with that, the nature of the landscape here is quite a harsh landscape being lashed by the Atlantic. You've got big, high, rugged mountains. It's left its mark on the community down through the generations, you know, and there's that resilience within the people that's been manufactured and generated by the landscape uh, in which we, 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 our people have been moulded. And I think that's a big factor, you know, that, you know, our ancestors came from nothing, you know, and our generation and maybe previous generations are reaping the real hard work of people who, who tiled on mountainside farmers. Like, you know, if you go back to my grandfather and my great grandfather's time, they were working hard in the fields, you know, trying to make, make pasture out of mountain. You know, every couple of meters of pasture they could create was of value because it sustained their family, you know. Um, so I think that's we carry that with us, that resilience, and it kind of stands to us even in the modern era. Before we we, we move on, um, you know, how how do you think we're we're still, you know, obviously the Blasket Islands, you know, the islands in, in Ireland are very much an identity as to what Ireland, old Ireland was. Um, how do you think the community of of West Kerry? Um, are keeping that the life of the blasket alive, albeit his his closed shop for a long time, but not to allow those people to be forgotten. I actually did a boat tour before I came over, and was it there's a huge amount of um writers on the island, which was quite remarkable, you know. Yeah, I suppose the the blasket the blasket community, you know, it was an exceptional community in in that you had. I suppose these scholars and 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 students, the language descending uh, on the island to learn Irish, but also to collect. And there was an awful lot of folklore collected. And many of these scholars who came um, at the turn of the last century, um, but as well as that, in on into the forties, fifties, sixties, they encouraged the writers to to document their lives and to to create their own memoirs of life on the island. 
and to collect the folklore of their own people. So you have a wonderful library of, of books, but also um, a wonderful collection of manuscript material held in the folklore department in, in, in Dublin. Um, but I suppose the attention the Blasket Island community has, achieved, has received because I suppose the scholars decided to kind of focus on that has taken a bit from other communities uh, on the peninsula, you know, where there's fierce parish divisions <laughs> out here at the end of the <laughs> at the end of the peninsula, but equally as rich in lore and, and storytelling and song and so on. And I think while the Blaskets was evacuated in 1953, and sadly that community no longer exists, I think we have to be mindful that we have communities with us today that need to be minded and and nurtured and nourished. And uh it is being celebrated, you know, there, there's quite, you know, the language is still managing to hang on here. It's still the lang language of the, of the community. It's coming under pressure more and more naturally, um, you know, as society changes and, you know, there's, there's just shifts in life that, uh, that happen naturally. Um, but there's a great awareness as well of the value of the language in terms of identity, in terms of development and in terms of, of our heritage. And, and I suppose when you come from a place like, like West Kerry, you're keenly aware of the obligation that's upon you, I suppose, to, to take what you're being handed from people that came before you, to look after it and hopefully pass it on to the next generation. And if you can pass it on in better condition, then, then what you received it, well, then that's fantastic. But at least, um, at least there's an awareness that, that we we have that responsibility. What you know, I, I know you did a documentary in London, you did a documentary in Boston. From your, you know, from your knowledge of the area and obviously meeting people, what was the draw to Springfield in Boston? You know, for the from the Blasket community initially. Yeah, that was a documentary series we did called Gael Boston, and it was kind of an exploration of Irish identity in Boston, possibly the most Irish city in the world. And it looked at, you know, the history of the Irish in the city. It looked at the present day Irish. It looked at how, how the, 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 um, the nature of being Irish has evolved and changed in that city. Um, Springfield, it's an outlier in Massachusetts. It was an industrial town and you had an awful lot of people from West Kerry that emigrated to Springfield. And it was simply because, I suppose, you had pioneers that went out to Springfield and would send the remittance home and they'd bring their siblings out. And gradually a community was built in Springfield, a West Kerry community, like it was a West Kerry enclave, if you like. And there was security in that for immigrants because, I suppose, in that age, it was very daunting for a young person to leave home and in the knowledge that they were probably never to return. Uh, you know, so to, it was a very lonely um, adventure. You know, you were going into the unknown. So to have the peace of mind that you're, you had family, relatives, neighbours, people you knew waiting for you on the other side, that was a huge factor. And, you know, you, you see it in all immigrant communities all immigrant communities tend to, to follow one another and gather together and, and build their own uh, home community there. You know, so if you look at 
great cities like New York, you know, you had your Chinatown and Little Italy and you had the Five Points and Hell's Kitchen then where, where the Irish would have, a lot of the Irish dock workers settled, you know, so it's a natural thing for immigrants to do, to, to kind of stick together, to stay together for, for protection, support. And uh, as well as that, it made it a lot easier to get on in life, you know, the connections helped. You know, and that's the great thing about the Irish, even to this day, um, the, the network we have in these foreign countries, um, there's a natural inclination amongst the people to assist those who are coming over. 100%, definitely 100%. Um, and it's great to see that not, you know, not falling away, no matter where you are in the world. It's, you'd always find a connection to either Kerry or Ireland. You know, if, if you push the boat out, you'd find a connection to Ireland, but all the time Kerry. Um, look, I think it's that important to to delve into that time you won the county championship with uh, UCC. Uh, you were full back. You made a habit of winning of drawing games before you won them. Which is we did. I, <laughs> I, I, we did a lot of draws that year, and I remember the first game we played. It was a draw. It was against Bantry uh, down in West Cork, and Bantry were the county champions from the previous year, and. The nature of college football, I suppose, all the focus is on the Sigerson Cup, which was played in February. And then you move in towards the summer and lads are kind of busy with exams. So things die away. There's no real training. There's no collective training. And then naturally the Cork-based players, the majority of the Cork players play, play with their own clubs in the county championship. So I think on that, that team was, was uh, called UCK, University College Kerry. <laughs> At the time, I think there was up to 12 or 13 Kerry fellas on the team. And uh, that first game against Bantry, I remember we were so disjointed and unprepared. We were late arriving and we were coming from all directions to get to the game. No training beforehand, no meetings, nothing. We didn't even have a set of jerseys. We realised we had no jerseys, but most of us had some kind of UCC training jersey in the bag. Like So I remember being in the dressing room and... Des Colnan, the trainer, frantically ripping numbers off jerseys, trying to make a number two out of it, number 21. And we'd black markers trying to put, you know, extra numbers on jerseys. And some of the jerseys were the away kit, which was white and black. And more of the jerseys were black and red. So we were a right motley crew going out onto the field. And the referee refused to start the game because <laughs> they cut of us. So, um, we were playing in Castlehaven and thankfully there were some officers from the club there and they had a set of jerseys. So we played in the Castlehaven jerseys that day. And I remember they, they said on Cork Radio, the, there was a, a commentator, Paddy Palmer, he was a bit of a character, but it must have been the most intelligent Castlehaven team that ever played a game. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. So, but it, it was, a, you know, it was a, a wonderful run. Uh, you know, we went all the way to county final and we were play, we played Nemo. That was a draw as well. Yeah. And that, that, that was a, a, a mighty occasion, especially coming from Kerry, you know, because um, Nemo, I suppose, w- would be seen as the kingpins of Cork football, the most successful team down there. And at the time, you know, they had a lot of very good Cork players. They had Colin Corkery and Martin Cronin and Joe Cavanagh and all yeah. these fellas. And I suppose we were young. You know, and we had no fear and um, it was a very balanced team. We didn't really have any big stars 
at the time. We had Eamon Fitzmaurice, who was just after breaking into the Kerry team the previous year. And, uh, you know, we had Mihalo Cronin, who w- would go on to play with Cork. And Alan Quirk was our goalkeeper. They were the mm-hmm. only two Cork fellas in the team. We <laughs> want to st- one fella to stand in goal, another fella to kick it through a freeze. <laughs> we didn't that much. But, was, uh, was Galvin there? Paul Galvin was there, yeah. He was playing wing back. And um, I think that year was actually the making of Paul Galvin because, you know, he hadn't, he was young, you know, he hadn't had any runs with Kerry at that stage, but he was, he had a fantastic year at wing back. You know, he was a real terrier, um, worked very hard up and down the field. He was kicking scores and it kind of brought him to prominence. You know, he was, he, he was um, presented with Munster player of the year. We went on to win a Munster club that year oh, and Paul was, was presented um, with, with Munster player of the year. But you know, it was a very balanced team. You had, you had, uh, and we played a lovely brand of football. You know, it was very exciting football. We kind of moved the ball because, because of the, the fact, I suppose, we had no big stars. You know, the ball was moved around a lot. You know, everyone was getting on the ball. And you had players like Ian Twist, Michael D. Cahill. You know, we were quite light, quite small, but we were zippy. You know, well, I wasn't zippy. I was kind of a slow moving <laughs> back. But, but, um, yeah, we, we had a great run and there was a great sense of camaraderie, I suppose, because of the ad hoc nature of the college setup. We were just coming together for the games. And then by the time we were into the latter stages of the county championship, we were back in college and we were able to, to come together for collective training then again. And that really gave us an impetus, you know, to, to, to push it on a bit more. And that said, with all the draws, I think we had four four draws or something, four replays that year. So we were playing football very often. We played hard and we certainly partied hard as well. <laughs> you know, we were at that age, you're in your formative years, you're enjoying life. And we didn't have, I suppose, the prying eyes of a community <laughs> breathing down in our necks. You know, if we went for a few drinks after after a game and we had maybe a big championship game the following week. No phones either, no social media. No, no, and it helped. You know, we were fit, young and fit enough to be able to kind of work it off during the week, but there was a great sense of camaraderie in that team. What are your memories? Because I believe when you would have played Cross McGlynn, then they would have been in their prime they were on fire back around. It blew us out of the water. <laughs> Absolutely blew. We were completely unprepared. We were we were a young, naive team going up there to meet seasoned champions who were just on a, a completely different level. They got a couple of early goals, and I, even though like we 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 improved during the course of the game, but we were just blown out of it the first. 15 minutes and you know it was just too much to recover I can't remember what we lost I think we clawed it back to maybe four or five points by the end of it but um, they were just on a different level you know they had wonderful players McConville and the McEntee twins and um, Carl Short and Francie Bellew and they were just men you know? yeah. Yeah, yeah, they, were I, very, they were very aggressive you know I so had a, first I, time I'd encountered that kind of um that aggression, that raw aggression where they were going to win at all costs and they were going to use whatever it took to win, you know. <laughs> so it, it, it was, a, it, was a, it certainly was a, a bruising experience. I had uh, um, Oshie McConville on the podcast before, I suppose, it was coming towards in the series one 
And uh, GC gave us some fascinating insight into the mindset of that dressing room at the time. If anyone slipped, you know, let the standards slip, they knew about it in training the next week. There was no prisoners. Um, but again, it was kind of what you touched on earlier on. They were going through the back end of the troubles and you obviously had the British Army coming, but the GA kept them together. That was your community. Um, and they were, they were a remarkable team, you know, what they achieved. Um, but yeah, so I, it was, I suppose it was a shame to, to kind of lose out that way. But overall, it, would, it was a good uh, good experience. Hard to believe you were county was. championship, Kerry and Cork county championship medal. Yeah, it, it's it's nice, and uh, you know, I suppose it's uh, again coming from Kerry. It's 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 sweet to have a Cork medal. You know, it cracks them up. You know, in Cork, <laughs> so many medals went across the border. I remember after that game against Nemo when we we won it, and. Uh, there was some fellow from Cork Radio was around the pitch gathering interviews and Michael D. Cahill was beside me and he, he was being interviewed and the Western Star were our sponsors. That, that, that was the college pub down on the Western Road and the fellow from the radio anyway says to Cahill, he says, I suppose you'll have a wonderful night of celebrations now on the Western Road and Cahill quick as a flash, we will, we will, yeah, but it won't be half as good as the homecoming in Killarney and Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, it, I, it must be interesting now looking back. I know you had, um, was it 20th anniversary or something a couple of years ago of that success. Um, was there any quality, looking back now, could you have seen qualities in, you know, in Fitzmaurice, that you know you'd see he'd, he'd go on obviously to manage Kerry but he was very successful with Pub Scott as well that time yeah you could definitely see it in him back then you know I first got to know him um, when we were together in the, the Kerry Miners and I remember the first day then in college freshers week I was walking through campus and who, who do I bump into but Eamon it was great and we've remained very good friends since you know he was my best man when I married and He's obviously principal inside in Pobble School now. And um, we ended up living together in college for a good few mm. years. Um, and <laughs> even living with him, you could see the competitive streak in him. <laughs> I, remember, I remember we used to be playing, the, we got a, it was just at that time where video games were coming in and we got a PlayStation into the house anyway. There were no lectures, only this PlayStation was going 24-7. And we were playing one game, this FIFA soccer game <laughs> and we all only had maybe four or five moves and we were milking these moves anyway but Jesus it was like a county final every day uh, Eamon and his first cousin Gus and myself and there was consoles hopping off screens and walls with frustration <laughs> but um, as it, he was a, he was a born leader you know even even as a fresher uh, we won a freshers All-Ireland and Eamon was a driving force on that team you know he was so solid um, so sensible, but also quite ruthless when it when it was required. Um, he obviously physically he was very strong. Um, so he he would have had I suppose that that as an advantage in the, his early days of col- college football. You know he two big trunks of legs on him, but it was his leadership qualities really that that shone true. And you know he was steady. He wasn't a very um, he wasn't a very uh, in in terms of playing style. It was it was um, it wasn't very it wasn't flamboyant in any way, you know. But he made runs when they were needed, 
you know, when when he knew when he when he felt that something had to be done to lift the team, he took it upon himself to do it. You know, great leadership qualities, and you know, it was no wonder then that he went on to become a wonderful intercounty football footballer with Kerry, and then um, a success, successful manager with Kerry as well. And players have an awful lot of respect for him as well, you know, um, because he's a very genuine person, you know, and and um, th- that the, the respect the, the respect goes out of that that uh, understanding of of a person's personality, I think. Definitely, no, definitely, definitely. Um, just you know, yeah. What what I suppose it's important obviously to mention this as well. You know, the early nineties you're in UCC, but you're also extremely successful with um on Goyaktukt three West Kerry championships in a row, first county title. You know, one second county title, one Munster that year. You know, I remember watching the game, um, seventeenth March two thousand four in Caltra. Uh, what are your memories of of that day? Um, the main memory is getting a bit of a dusting from Noel Meehan <laughs> inside full back. <laughs> yeah, the, the Meehans did wreck that day. Um, oh, Mike yeah. Meehan was beside me in, in the, the corner and they had Declan Meehan on the wing and uh, they had another Meehan in the full back line. There was Meehans everywhere. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, it wasn't our day. You know, there was, it was very disappointing. Um, you know, rural clubs like ours, we only you only get really you really only get one shot at something like that, and unfortunately, we just underperformed on the day. Caltra played exceptionally well, um, you know, and they were deserving winners on the day, and they were a very small club as well. So it was a wonderful occasion in Crow Park to have two clubs like that competing at the the apex of club football in 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 Crow Park, you know. There was a huge crowd. I can't remember the attendance, but it was one of the, the biggest attendances at a club final ever. Jeez. Yeah, because there was a huge interest from outside as well, simply because I suppose the, the romantic nature of it, these clubs from rural backgrounds, one from the back end of West Kerry, um, and you would these uh, an array of county players as well on display. So it was a great occasion, and you know. There are fond memories of the buzz and the excitement leading up to the game, but the bitter disappointment of losing, you know. But you move on. I remember a good friend of mine, John Canole, we, uh, we got to know one another in college. He was a captain of our freshers team and uh, he's from County Clare and he was getting married to a Czech girl and the, the, the wedding was taking place out in her place. And John would have spent time in UCG as well, so he'd have a lot of friends made up that neck of the woods as well. And myself and Michal O'Cronin from Cork, we were going out to the wedding anyway, and we arrived, it was out in a, a kind of a hotel brewery somewhere in a forest out there. And we went up to the room and fired the bags into the room and ready for a big night of, of, of fun and drinking and meeting up with friends and that. Down we went in anyway into the bar. First fell I meet, Noel Meehan. <laughs> this, oh, this is only I think a year after losing to them like you know and I says to John my, I said you're some who you never told me he was coming and uh, John says I didn't I was afraid if you knew you mightn't come <laughs> <laughs> but we had a great night you know and I, I'd, it was my first time having a, a chat with Noel a lovely lad and it was actually galling he, he, he actually said that he reckoned they had never played as well Oh, jeez. Uh, as they did that day, you know. 
but uh, you know, wonderful people. And um, I know a few years back there, some of our lads went up to Caltra having a, oh, yeah. a, a reunion or a celebration and, and some of our lads went up um, to attend that. So, you know, it was nice to be able to pay that respect. The fact that I'm after moving away now and, you know, you, you're doing a lot of documentaries um, abroad. If someone asks you, what is Gaelic football? What is the GA? How would you describe it? Um, the first thing I'll, I, there, the, the, the two key elements for me are community and, and uh, amateurism. Um, I think if you can understand the dynamics of those two elements, you'll go a long way to explaining what the game signifies to the people of Ireland. Um, the rules, obviously, they're important. You need to know how the game is played, like, um, you know, the practicalities of, of playing the game. But for me, I think our attachment to the game goes way beyond what happens on the field. It's what you're representing, what you're playing for, um, and the identity that that generates and creates uh, for a community. And... You know, I take great pride in, in, you know, I often find myself showing people clips maybe on my phone from the hurling All-Ireland hurling final or the All-Ireland football final. And, you know, they're, they're naturally amazed when they're looking at it at this huge stadium packed with 80,000 people and these wonderful athletes. And then you tell them these are amateurs, you know, and they're just, they're completely in awe of the commitment. Um, and then when you explain to them that these players have been nurtured by clubs which are sustained by small communities on a voluntary basis and that these players have been looked after up through the age groups and developed into these wonderful athletes and that they are the embodiment of their community's work and the element of pride that that carries with it, it, it really impresses on people. Do you know when you did these documentaries, I suppose specifically probably in the Boston one, um, how important did you see the GA was for, for an Irish community abroad? It's extremely important. You know, it's, it's the hub, I suppose, of, of the network quite often in many of these cities and always has been. Um, it's pastime. You know, it's exercise, but that's not its key function, I, I, I believe. It's, it's, it's a unifying um, factor for the community. So, you know, the, the, the natural thing for any immigrant when he makes off a new city, if he is coming from a GA background, is whether he's a player or not, it doesn't matter, is to actually make off the gathering point for the local GA clubs. And immediately you're carried into the family you know arms are thrown around you and you're welcomed into the family and there's great comfort in having that and there's a an realization and an understanding that that exists as well and when that exists or when that understanding exists it brings with it a sense of duty to maintain it so that's why you get people actually getting involved in and willing to do the voluntary work even though it's not their home club they make it their home club. And there's that sense of ownership that that brings with it. So, you know, you know yourself, 
I, I'm sure, you know, any fella that emigrates out to America or out, out to the Far East or whatever, a lot of the business contacts and, mm-hmm. and you know, the, the, the progress you make in your professional career have links with the social aspect of, of, of the GA club. So it, it's a vital importance really to, to Irish immigrants wh- wherever they are in the world. And even from a work, a work point of view, like quite often you're going into maybe a city you've no experience of. You're working on stories that have nothing to do with the Irish community quite often, but you need to, to, to develop contacts. The first thing you'll do is you'll make off the Irish bars or you get in touch with the chairman of the, the GA club out there. And, you know, you'll say you're from the Gaeltacht GA club and straight away there's a trust, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you'll receive support. You know, and that's the power of the GA, and that's that's the the wonder of the GA, and you know, I'd hate to see the day the whole thing goes if it goes professional or even brings in elements of professionalism, because once that happens, you're um, you're threatening the very thing that makes the GA special. Definitely, no, definitely, that's that's very very interesting to you know that insight. Um, look. <laughs> How did you get into, you know, video journalism um, and how, you know, what's your thought process when you land at a scene and you must p- portray what's happening to the viewer? Um, I, yeah, I, I suppose video journalism, it's a bit different to the traditional method of, of news gathering in the, in the sense that I work completely alone. I do my own camera work and I edit my own material. So I'm, 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 a, I'm a kind of a, a one, one person operation. Um, and as well as that, then I'm based in, in, on the peninsula here. So I kind of cover the rural parts of Cork and Kerry for the, the most part. And my focus is on, community stories, issue-driven stories, national stories that might have a local uh, twist or a local telling. Um, I do a lot of stories which focus on nature, farming, fishing, uh, wildlife, culture, community. Um, And I do a lot of little stories, you know, odd stories, you know, uh, novelty stories, if you like, just really little interesting stories, the kind of stories you'd see at the very end of a bulletin. Um, So uh, when I'm working, you know, you're uh, you obviously identify your story and you start the thought process thing. How can I tell the story? How can I tell the story in an effective way uh, and in an engaging way? So you try to incorporate techniques in how, in relation to how you film it, in relation to how you interview someone, and you're kind of weaving, you're weaving your story as you're working through the day, and while you're filming, you're always editing in your head, you know. So maybe someone says something in the middle of the interview, and you say, Do "You know what? That's a great way to open the report," or you might capture uh, an image, and you say to yourself, "That's a great image to end the report." that kind of end the report with, 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 with impact. Um, and then, you know, you, you're obviously working under time constraints quite often in a news bulletin. You have to, you have to, you have a, a deadline to meet. So you're, you're working at speed um, and you're there simply, well, I, I like to think that I'm, I'm just a platform, that I'm creating a platform for the community to express themselves 
So your role is, is to facilitate the story. You know, there are other kinds of news reportage which are very much personality based and they're required as well because they're part of the nature of, of television and television news where you've got, you know, these kind of headline reporters who are personalities in their own right and they are driving the story. But I suppose working with communities like we have down here in the Southwest, I prefer to take a kind of um, a secondary role and and leave leave the community speak from, for themselves and and represent themselves. Would that be a similar approach though? Would you do this? Would you apply a similar approach then to documentaries that you would do in, would say, in Boston, in London, and something similar what you're after doing with the the rain documentary in in Dubai? Yeah, it, it it depends on the documentary. You know, I, I've done a lot of historical documentaries and they're quite they're quite formulaic in the sense that you're there as a narrator and you're mm. you're kind of telling the story and the the the, chrono, the the chronology of the story and the facts of the story. Uh but then there are other uh human interest documentaries, you know, they're kind of I suppose life features, if you like, and in those documentaries, you're kind of working more on the connection you're making with the people you're meeting. And uh, I suppose a bit of your own personality comes into those type of programs a bit more. Um, the, 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 I enjoy meeting people. You know, I, I, I enjoy, that's the, the beauty of the job, really. You meet some wonderful people. And it's, it's a gift, really, that the job gives you the uh, license to enter people's lives. You're a stranger going into many people's lives, but because you're there in a professional capacity, you're invited in, you know? So I, I've been lucky to see many, many wonderful places throughout the world, but to really get under the skin of those places and those communities through my work, you're not coming there as a tourist. You know, there's a door has been opened for you into real life there. You know, you, 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 you're, you're not just sampling the superficial uh, tourism product you're you're seeing people in their real lives and you know you're going to places and parts of these cities and countries that you probably wouldn't visit if you if you weren't there as a journalist you know so you know working in slums in Nairobi or working up in in very remote parts of of northern Ethiopia up in the mountains they're wonderful experiences and you see I suppose the the beauty of community and you see the resilience of people and you see the similarities between, you know, all communities throughout the world. You know, we're all striving to achieve the same things, you know, develop as individuals, provide for our families, support our communities. So um, we just do it in in kind of different ways because we've been molded differently by history and by climate maybe. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful job like that. You know, I've, I'm fortunate that I get to work at home here in, in Kerry, but then I can branch out and explore parts of the world as well. That time you did the, the documentary in Boston, I know I'm referring back to Boston a lot, but we, we do have a lot You're of listeners. You're wearing a Boston, Boston cap as well, I know this. <laughs> oh, yeah, man, jeez. Um you know, it would it was filmed around the time when Trump was in power. Um, did you come across a lot of undocumented who might have been afraid to speak out? 
I did, but but you know they were there before that. You know, mm. even before, obviously, the fear factor was ratcheted up an awful lot when when Trump came to power because you know it was part of his rhetoric in the lead up to the uh, the, the election that he there was going to be a crackdown on on illegal immigration and that, and obviously the focus was on you know immigration from from the south, you know, Mexico from Mexico and so on, and South America in particular. But unfortunately, um, the Irish were also part part of that story. You know, even though they might be perceived a bit differently in the in in, in, in as as a different type of immigrant, which is very unfair as well. Um, but I I worked actually uh, as a reporter out there as well in the lead up to the election. I did a road trip from uh, the Georgia up through the country, up through the Carolinas into virginia onto pennsylvania and finished up in boston and on to new york for election night and i was doing a series of reports focusing on the, the key issues i suppose during the election campaign talking to ordinary people but i was actually struck when i got to boston um struck by the the level of support for trump amongst the irish community which was very surprising you know obviously traditionally democratic and so on but um I was surprised and it kind of got me thinking all the polls were predicting Hillary or, you know, all the polls and she had quite a strong lead in the polls. But when I got to Boston then and talking to people and, you know, they were kind of almost whispering it. They were calling, not that they were embarrassed to say, it, but they weren't saying it out loud, but there was support for Trump and it kind of got me thinking, you know, there could be a bit of an upset here. And then when I was in New York, I remember I went down to the Lower East Side on election night to film in some of the, the kind of hipstery bars down there, a younger, more liberal uh, community down there. And the results started to come in on the big screens. And, and uh, then Florida came in, you know, for Trump. And I suddenly realized I'm in the wrong place here. I need to get back to the, the Hilton up in Uptown where all the Trump supporters were gathering. So I spent my night up there. So it was, it was a seismic um, result that had implications for the entire world. You know, and I think we're still reeling uh, on this planet, um, you know, even though, what is it? It's it's a year and a half now, is it or more? Mm-hmm. It's two years, is it? Well, two it's, years there, I know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and we're, we're still we're still trying to come to terms with, with the, the shake up the, 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 the world experience during during his presidency. Jeez, you, remar- you must have remarkable stories, even from that alone, that trip you did during the election, that lead up to the election. I never knew you did that. No, that must have been amazing. It, it, it was a, an interesting trip because it brought me again to places that I'd never been to. And I had the freedom from the editors to go where I wanted and do what I wanted, obviously within reason, once they were, you know, newsworthy stories. So, like, I remember I was in South Carolina. I wanted to do on gun law simply because that state has quite loose regulations uh, around gun law. And, you know, you can go into a gun shop there and you can buy uh, guns. I think you can buy up to four or five weapons in any single purchase. You don't need a license. You don't need to register the gun. All you need is to be able to show a clean, a, um, a clean record and you can walk out of the shop with a, with a bag of guns. But, you know... I, I, I remember I went to a rural part of South Carolina and uh, I, I called into a bar uh, uh, owned by an Irishman, actually. And, you know, he, he was fantastic, Jerry. He, 
he really helped me, put me in touch with a lot of the lads drinking in the bar. They would have been very rural into their hunting, into their guns, into their jeeps. And, you know, you have this kind of, I suppose, perception of the, the kind of deep south and the hillbillies and their guns. And But I learned enough that um, it was one of the first places that I experienced a true sense of American community. These were people who had come from a long line of hunters. And it wasn't about the guns. It was about the tradition of hunting. You know, they were doing what their fathers and their fathers before them had done. And I went out with them one day out into the forest, like, and they were all, you know, firing guns. There was young fellas firing guns and everything. But it was a very, very social thing. Now, you know, I'd have reservations about the, the nature of the gun laws and, and, and that out there and the, the high levels of gun ownership are frightening out there. But it did open my eyes to, I suppose, that, that attachment the, a lot of Americans have to their guns, that it's not necessarily something about power or holding a gun or, you know, being dangerous or even for, you know, the, a justifiable um, cause for protection, but that there is a kind of an ingrained uh, attachment and deep heritage associated with gun ownership that goes way back. Uh, then I went up into Pennsylvania and I'd always wanted to finish, visit uh, Amish country. And uh, so I decided to do a feature item there focusing on how they might vote. And of course, that community, you know, they, they, they avoid modern technology. Yeah. So a lot the, 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 because of the fact that you have um, electronic voting in Pennsylvania, a lot of them weren't going to vote. Jeez. You know, so it was interesting to hear their perspective on on US politics because they're they're quite a self-enclosed community. And you know, it was wonderful to see. I, I remember I went to a few farm families there to interview people that were reluctant, you know, it's so a lot of the Amish they don't like to be photographed in that. So we were having to, to be creative in how we did the interview without maybe showing the person's face and that. But, you know, they were very welcoming people. And it was wonderful to see these large families all working together on the on the land. You know, they were all using horses and plowing with, you know, all traditional farming methods. But there was a great sense of community cooperation, like the mehel we had here in West Kerry, you know, years, years in years past, where neighbours supported one another. There was a lot of bartering still going on. You know, if there was a mechanic, he'd fix your... He'd fix your 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 farm implement if you returned with maybe some bags of vegetables. There was a lot of that still going on, so it was kind of um, it was nice to see to see to see how the people lived there and to see the value they placed on community. Before I, I leave you go, um, I'd like to just to get your opinion on this. You know, and uh, this is completely your own opinion. What do you think? Could the people of West Kerry do to keep, you know, uh, you know, obviously Star Wars and Ryan's daughter is a big um, element of the identity of, of West Kerry. Do you think more could be done to promote Star Wars tourism and Ryan's daughter tourism in the area? Like, I always found this amazing that there wasn't a replica, you know, the village of Ryan's daughter kept from that time and even Star Wars as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um... 
I might sound a bit contrary now, but I'm actually <laughs> glad it doesn't exist because I'll tell you, like, those things came from the outside and were dropped in here. And okay, there's an element of spin-off from them, okay? And you're, you're asking yourself, how can we benefit from that? And obviously, you know, people here have to survive. And at the end of the day, you need to put food on the table and you need to have the few bob in your pocket. And maybe to, to, to benefit from that spin-off is, is a means of achieving that. But it's hollow. You know, it's not what we are. It doesn't belong to us. Um, I was up in Count Chabail lately and uh, for a walk with a friend and we were sitting down taking a break and uh, Count Chabail is the headland. It's where they built the replica of that Jedi temple for um, Star Wars. It was perched up on the top of the cliff and we were sitting there anyway, just taking a rest and these two walkers came down along the cliffs. They'd been up at the top and they were German and your man stops. He's, I, I said, hello, how's it going? And he says, Luke Skywalker lived up there, he said. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and I said, P- Pierre's Fertair lived down there. Pierre's Fertair was this wonderful, um, he's a wonderful figure in our folklore. He was a kind of a chieftain from the, the 17th century, a great poet, swordsman in the stories, a wonderful sailor. And his castle is at the foot of Count Chabelle, and he's our Luke Skywalker, you know, and he's, he's got a far richer story. Than, than Luke Skywalker would have. So I started telling the German about Piers. He kind of laughed at me first. Aha, yeah, no, but Luke Skywalker is up there. <laughs> so as I told him, started telling him about Piers Fertair, he, he kind of started to take me a bit, a bit more serious, you know, and he started listening. And then he started taking an interest in the castle. And he was asking if, um, if the castle, if he could visit the castle. And I showed him how to get to the castle. And I think... We need to look after what we have um, ourselves here and not worry too much about what, what, what has been brought into the area from the outside and have the confidence uh, to, to, to not just to respect what we have, but to value it and to, to gift it, to gift it, to, to, to understand that it has enough value to be shared with the wider world and that there, there is a hunger and a thirst for that authentic, authentic um, heritage that we're fortunate enough to still hold here. Yeah, you know, yeah, very, that's actually very interesting, every title like that. Um, do, do you think if the peninsula didn't have as much success tourism-wise, that people's opinion would have been different. They would definitely latch onto that um, anyway to, to generate money. I suppose the fact we have so much heritage in the area allows, it's important to keep that and not to be, you know, overpowered by, like you're saying, things external. Definitely. But I think sometimes, you know, it's, it's a fine balance. There comes a point where, where tourism can actually destroy communities despite its economic benefits and that people eventually lose sight of who and what they are, you know, and, and it's a vicious circle then because then you start to kill the thing that draws people. You know, I was talking about it earlier. Um, And, you know, it's, it's very important that we look after ourselves as a community as well, that we take that time to, to, to look after ourselves. And that's, that was one 
great thing that came out of the, the, the pandemic. You know, I remember the first lockdown when it hit that spring and into summer, we had wonderful weather. Yeah. I'm here back in Dunhuin now and, you know, you've got the Slayhead Drive. It's one of the biggest tourist routes. It's a very dramatic drive out along the, 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 the end of the peninsula, Clifftop Drive. And for the first time since I was very young, I had a sense that we actually owned our own place again. You know, um, my kids and my neighbor's kids, they had the freedom of the parish. They were able to explore their own parish. There was no buses, no constant um, uh, lines of cars coming around. They were tearing around the place in their bikes. They were meeting their neighbors. They were going up every Boharine into every field, up the mountains, down, uh, following all the rivers. And they got to know their area intimately. Everything slowed down. The neighbours had time to talk to one another. You know, here for six months, the it's an extended tourism, tourism season and everyone's really busy during mm. that season, you know, and you're just caught up in the cycle. And my favourite time of the year around here is actually from th this period up until the start of December, mi middle of December, because things have slowed down a bit. And then it's really hectic again for Christmas, January, February, you know. It's back to basics. What's the feeling um, around the place at the moment in relation to the, the rain? You know, the rain, you know, obviously last year didn't really go ahead because of COVID. What's the, the feeling this year? Is it going to be there or what's the, the story? Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to say. Obviously, the, you know, if things stay as they are, you'd imagine the RAN could go ahead. But I suppose the nature of the RAN is it isn't conducive to this concept of social distancing. <laughs> the yeah. RAN is wild. The RAN is revelry. Yeah. And I prefer to see no RAN than see a RAN that's managed and structured with fellas socially distanced because the soul of the RAN is the wildness of it, mm. you know, and that's the magic of it. You know, for one day in the year, a community cuts loose. And you can get up to all high kinds of hijinks and get away with it. You know, fellas around the place wearing masks. No one knows who knows who the next fella is. And, you know, it's 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 all in, in good spirit. It's, it's good spirited fun. Um, and the atmosphere, you know, when you're here in the town, when you're in the town on Rand's Day and you hear all the different marching rands around the place and the sound of the drum, it's the heartbeat of West Kerry you're hearing, you know, it's the pride of community, mm -hmm. the competing ran by groups, all trying to be better than the next crowd and all believing that they are. And, you know, when they meet on the street and they're shouting at roar and roaring at one another, there's an energy there. That, that's an energy that's, that, that has um, come forth from the generations that marched the ran before them. You know, there it's like what we were talking about the playing playing for your local club. You know, it's the same thing. They're they're marching for the people that came before them as well. And then you go out into the countryside and the traditional rands, smaller little rand groups going from house to house. You know, to be out for a walk on Rand's Day in a rural parish back here, and you hear kids with tin whistles. Um, walking through pelting rain and driving wind to collect a few bob from door to door it's a, it's a beautiful sound you know it's 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 very evocative and it 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 it's the sound of community 
you know, and the day Rand's day becomes commercial, which can often happen with kind of festivals like this, you know, like, you know, you think of things like the bull running festival in Spain, and, you know, okay, they're ingrained in the area's uh, heritage and tradition, but they, they become commercial and they become kind of gathering places for, for tourists. And before long, the tourists outnumber the locals. And with that, then a lot of the soul is lost for the local community. You know, the enjoyment they knock out of it is lost. Um, so Rand's Day is especially, and we're fortunate that it happens the first day, the, ver- the day after Christmas, because it means not very many people will be down for it. Because yeah, you have sure. to kind of, you know, you're after maybe a long day, Christmas day, a lot of drink taking Christmas night. And, you're, you know, you're not inclined to want to sit into the car on, on Rand's Day morning or St. Stephen's morning and drive off four or five hours down to Dingle. So because of that, I think the Rand has kind of held its, its local feel so far anyway. Do you think you'll, you'll go ahead this year at the moment? Is there, um, is there talks around the place? Like, what's the, what's the song? I was, even, the song talking, I was even talking to, to a fella today, Declan Malone, like, um, he's, he's, he's uh, with the, the John Street Ran, and he's, he's saying that, you know, people are a bit worried in Dingle that I mightn't go ahead again this year. And that's an awful shame because you fellas in Dingle that live for Rand's Day, it's the be all and end all, you know, for them. They spend all year thinking about it and preparing for it. Jeez. You know, and as soon as it's over, they're planning again, like for next year's run, and they'll be heartbroken um, if it doesn't go ahead. Just a matter of wait and see, I suppose, closer to the time. What are the, That's it. That's what it. Are the, yeah. What, what That's are the it. And at the end of the day, you know, decisions, hard decisions were made through this pandemic. Take, for example, the first lockdown, I think it was announced by, you know, the 16th of March. I remember the Taoiseach giving a speech out in New York and it was quite, um, I suppose, a sobering speech. You had Patrick's Day the following day and, you know, even locally here in Dingle, there's a great tradition, Patrick's morning, 6am, the earliest parade in Ireland. It goes way back to the land war of the 1890s when the British banned uh, gatherings between sunrise and sunset in order to get around that, the people of Dingle decided to hold their Patrick's Day march before sunrise. Jeez. And the tradition has continued ever since. So that's why you have two parades in Dingle. You've got the, 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 the parade in the dark at 6 a.m. And then the, the, your, your, your kind of, you know, stereotypical parade later in the afternoon. But a decision was made to call that, you know, very, very um, historic March in the morning that was called off and you know it was a big decision to make but it was done uh, you know with the well-being of the community in mind and you know in rural places like this that communal network is still so important that it overrides you know any kind of socioeconomic motivation or even uh, the, the, the pride of keeping something going and not breaking the tradition the tradition was broken uh, that in that first lockdown and it was admirable because it was done um, for the sake of the community Jeez, Jeez. Uh, hope, hopefully it will it will go ahead um, you know hopefully Duran will go ahead this year and you know hopefully hopefully it will hopefully numbers will will improve um, look before I leave you go um, I always throw this to 
to uh, my guests, what would be two non-negotiables for you on a daily basis? How do you mean non-negotiables? <clears throat> like you do it without, without even, like you have to do it every day. For example, meditate for 10 minutes, you know, but on one sock before the other. I've had crazy answers to this before. All right. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I wouldn't or, be... Or fish oaks, you know, fish oaks, something like that. Yeah, I wouldn't be a man for routines now or anything. You know, I go to bed at different times. I get up at different times. I eat at different times. I do different things. I read. I, I mightn't read. Um, I, I'd always, I always like a cup of tea and a bar of chocolate after dinner. A simple pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A, a nice cup of tea. Um, I always try to take maybe just even if you've had a bad day, just to look back on the day and try and pull some positive out of it. It doesn't matter what it is. It might be just something someone said to you. It, it, it could be the smallest thing, but I think it's important to always find find something positive in every day. Brilliant, know? brilliant. But I, I mean to ask this, you saw me over this, um, Sean, but what was the most bizarre thing you've ever reported on? Jesus. Um, <laughs> I wish you I'd catch you. Yeah, I, there's nothing really that springs to mind. You know, I suppose... What kind of true you like? What reporting through you before like you might have got a bit of hostility for her or something. you know when you're working and when you're kind of especially when you're behind the camera yourself the camera is almost a barrier between you and what's happening because you're you're you're, you're just a piece of the machinery yourself and you've, you're there to do a job so you know I, I i remember covering the refugee crisis out in the mediterranean I was on the Greek islands there when all the, the refugees and migrants were coming across. And it was just after that, that little boy, Alan Kurdi, the three-year-old, was washed ashore. And those images, uh, you know, rattled the world and made the world sit up and actually take, take a look at what was happening here. Mm-hmm. And I remember I followed the path of the, the refugees up through Europe. And I remember being, I think it was just on, 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 I was almost on the Hungarian border and the refugees were being bussed across the border. They were trying to make their way to Germany and uh, buses were scarce and you had thousands and thousands and thousands of refugees building up uh, and they were desperate. And many of them had walked from, hundreds of miles you know after crossing dangerous seas carrying carrying what they had left on their backs you know coming from war-torn countries like syria and iraq and this was their only hope you know so people were desperate and i remember uh, being in this border village um called bobska and the um the buses came and there was this rush for the bus. Hundreds and thousands of people rushed to try and get on the bus. And it was this surge of, of human panic. And I was filming it. And as I was filming it, there was a father holding a, a young fella. And the young fella was in tears. He was terrified. And the father wasn't in a position to even console him because the father's sole objective was to try and get himself and his son on the bus and I remember looking at that young fella and I had a a a young fella at home the same age and 
it just it it struck it, it hit me hit me it was one of the few times that i've been i suppose i've i've felt very emotional you know to see because i saw my son I, I imagined him as my son and i thought of how fortunate we are where by pure chance where we live um you know we have wonderful benefits and we give out about certain elements of our life and we're complaining and then when you see this blind panic in a child's eyes and you you, you kind of say to yourself isn't it an awful cruel world for an awful lot of people and we were should you, be thankful like were you on your own recording that or had you one or two guys with you no i was on my own Jeez, it must have been frightening enough doing that uh, it, 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 it isn't, you know, you're, you're, you're there to do a job and, you know, I'm 15 years working as a video journalist now, so I've built up a fair bit of experience and, you know, sometimes you kind of move into areas that you kind of say to yourself, maybe I need to be pulling back here a bit now, uh, depending on situations or the nature of the story you're working on and you have to have your wits about you. Um, so it's, it's, you just have to kind of balance things and, Obviously, you're trying to capture the, the rawest and most powerful footage possible, but then you have to think of your own safety as well and, and be conscious of that. But generally, wherever you go, like you, you experience the warmth of, of, of um, human disposition. You know, um, you, you, you're unlucky if something bad happens, you know. Something bad can happen. You're dingling on, on a Saturday night. Yeah, true, you know? true. Yeah. So um, no, I you know, and you 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 work in difficult conditions sometimes, um, but I, I I think if you can trust is is a lot of, a lot of a lot of a lot of it. If you can build up trust with people, and if 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 you can kind of share a mutual respect, um, then you'll 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 manage fine. You know. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Look, Sean, I'm after taking a huge amount out of your, your day and I do apologise, but I'd like to thank you for taking time out and coming on Inside View podcast and I'm sure we'll, we'll cross paths in a couple of weeks' time. Not at all, Jamie. Thanks for having me. I hope you all enjoyed the interview with Sean. You got a great insight into his uh, his career. Um, that's all from us on this week's episode of an Inside View podcast. Uh, please do follow us on all our social media channels. Over on Instagram is at underscore on the ball team building. Over on Facebook it's on the ball team building. Over on Twitter it's at we are on the ball two. That's the digit two. You'll also find us on LinkedIn on the ball team building, and you'll also find us on TikTok on the ball team building. Have a lovely week, and be sure to tune in again next week. We have another exciting guest. Till then, stay safe and remember, cred unit fin. Talk to you all soon, and thank you all for listening.